Good morning. Diners, travelers, I guess that we're back to that almost, and food lovers. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig. And uh, today we're going to be highlighting um, personalities and products. I'm starting with a long-anticipated book by uh, Laurie Wollever, um, Wollever, um, called Bourdain, The Definitive Oral Biography. And I know this book is going to get a great deal of attention. Let me talk, share with you my conversation with Laurie. Well, Laurie Wollever, you have really, you've turned out some really important work in the last few years, and you already have moved on and have plans, um, which I expect to take you to Copenhagen, because that's where your baker is, so you can eat at all these, and the best restaurant in the world is Noma, mm-hmm. and then number two is there, is Geranium, is right there too, <laughs> so you ought to have a good good list of food to, to uh, stock up on, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, but what we're going to be talking about today is um, you were a long-time assistant to uh, Tony Bourdain. Um, right. Could you give us a little bit of background on how you came to be and how long you were such an assistant? Mm-hmm. Sure. So, I went to culinary school shortly after college, and uh, my, I worked for Chef Mario Batali for a number of years. As God bless you. Yeah. <laughs> I know. A compl- Mark, complicated, Mark very well, actually. Yeah. Uh, so, um, <laughs> I didn't know that. That's funny. Yeah. So Mario actually introduced me to Tony. Uh, I was getting ready to, to finish up my time with Mario, and Tony was looking for someone to help him with his first cookbook called Anthony Bourdain's Leal Cookbook. Uh, He wanted someone to help him test and edit recipes for that book. So he hired me based on the work I had done with Mario. And we had a very great, uh, fruitful, and very easy collaboration on that book. And then a number of years passed, I went on to work as an editor at Art Culinaire and Wine Spectator magazines. And um, Tony, of course, went on to to start a fabulous uh, television career and then I was looking to to change things and, and get a part-time job because I had had a baby. And I uh, reached out to Tony and a number of other people uh, looking for part-time work. And Tony said, well, my assistant is actually leaving. Would you want to try uh-huh. that job and see how that suits you? So I said, yes, of course. Uh, so I started doing that. That was in uh, 2009. And I continued to work with him as his assistant up until the end of his life. Well, that's a remarkable backstory uh, to to the books that you've done. You finished one of his books, which is a travel book and world travel, and then you you set out on your own to do this. What you it's Bourdain is the title, and you mm-hmm. subtitle it the definitive oral biography. Um, explain to to our listeners what your concept was in this. Sure. So the oral biography format is different, of course, from a straight biography in that uh, all of the interviews that I did for the book, and I did close to 100 uh, with people from every part of his life, really, from from the beginning to the end, uh, I, I, I conducted those interviews and then sort of cut them together and put them back together in, in a sort of a quilt uh, to make a narrative structure that tells the story of his life. So each chapter has 
anywhere from two to ten voices uh, from different people uh, who knew him, including his his now late mother, Gladys Bourdain, his brother, Christopher Bourdain, uh, his first wife, Nancy, his second wife, Otavia, his, his daughter, who's now 14 years old, uh, plenty of colleagues from his kitchen days in the 1980s and 90s in New York, uh, his, his publishing colleagues, his television colleagues, and then plenty of friends and interesting people that he met along the way. How did he become so well-known with his television work? I mean, it's not, there are lots and lots of TV chefs from Martha Stewart on down or up, I guess, as the mm-hmm. case may be. But, but Tony was really special. I mean, he, he, yeah, you know, I think that he, I think he had a charisma that combined with an intelligence and a, a sort of lack of pretense. Uh, that combination of factors, I think, was very unusual, especially for the time when he broke into television. Of course, he already created a, a platform for himself by writing the book Kitchen Confidential. Uh, <laughs> that was the, the first um, thing I ever, the first time I ever heard of him, and, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I read that. And when it was uh, initiated um, in, in the New Yorker, I mean, it was, um, a friend mm-hmm. of mine said, "You've got to read this." Um, just, uh, that's, but that, but that was a great book, as, a, as opposed to Gordon Ramsay's life story. <laughs> right, which was, right. Which yeah, was he, you know, which he, I think he, he, dreadful. Right. <laughs> I think that uh, Tony just sort of he approached the whole idea of talking about chefs and restaurants and food in a completely different way than had been the case uh, in that era, where where things were very buttoned up and really. People only focused on the the chef and the immaculate white chef coat in the, in the in the in the front of the brigade, and and really there was not much consideration given to the rest of the people who who made a restaurant work. And he really sort of shone a light on on the entire industry in a way that made some people very uncomfortable because it yeah, was yeah the underbelly was, as they called it right yeah yeah so I think creating that platform for himself and then using that to to get a, a television platform. I think people were really interested in what he had to say because he was such a good writer, because he was so honest and unfair. You point out that in the book, a lot of times, uh, a lot of the people commented on the fact that he was such a natural writer to start with. And Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. that's kind of where he wanted to go, not so much the chefing, but the actual Mm -hmm. writing, right? Yeah, absolutely. I I think he was very happy being a chef for, for some time, but... You know, I think as we all know, it's a it's a very difficult industry, especially once you once you're a little bit older. You know, and I'm I'm oh, not sure. talking actually elderly, but even you know, once you're into your late thirties, it's taken if you it's if, if you've been working at it, it's it's yeah, it's very physically demanding on your body. It really takes a toll on your relationships. I mean, it just is a complete commitment to a lifestyle that I think is very exciting and glamorous when you're young, and then becomes a little bit more punishing and difficult as you get older. So I think like so many of his colleagues, Tony was trying to figure out, well, what do I do? You know, I'm 44. My knees are starting yeah. to go. I'm tired. I'm burnt out. I need to figure out a, an exit strategy here. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of his colleagues go to country clubs or they go to teaching or they get out of mm-hmm. the business altogether. Or maybe they go into sales or into the wine part of things. And he decided, um, you know, to, to make a go of, of being a writer and something that he had been working at for a long time, really developing his craft sort of quietly. And he, uh, you know, it was 
it was a combination of a great talent and a fresh voice and also a lot of good luck and timing and being in the right yeah. place at the right time. Yeah. His, his mother... Well, yes and no. He he, he wrote uh, he wrote two crime novels uh, that were that's published. What, that's in, what I was referring to. Yeah, so he, uh, they were set in ninety or written in ninety five and ninety seven. But the the protagonist of the first one, Bone in the Throat, actually was a chef, and so most okay. of the action took place in and out of a restaurant kitchen. So it really did draw on his deep deep Experience. knowledge of food and the restaurant business. Now uh, he. He has um, an interesting background, anyhow. Uh, his father was French, right? That's right, yes. And Yeah, and uh, his parents took him around to eat well, I guess his brother too, right? That's right, yeah. The, the family went to France uh, when Tony was about 11 years old, and his brother was a few years younger than him. They had had a, a one of Pierre's relatives had died, and so they went to go pay their respects and and uh, to deal with the estate in France. And so the entire family went for about a month. Uh, Tony and his brother Christopher and their mother Gladys uh, sailed over on the I believe it was the Queen Mary, and uh, and then met Pierre in France and spent some time in the country and then also spent some time in Paris. And it was really a, an eye-opening experience at, at first. Uh, Tony talks about this extensively in Kitchen Confidential. At first, he was bored. He was restless. He really didn't want anything to do with it. He and his brother just read comic books and, you know, ate French fries and and uh, sweets. And then at some point, they <laughs> realized typical. if they were, yeah, they realized if they if they would behave well and if they could if they could sit at the table, then they would actually be learning a lot more and and you know get, uh, the world would kind of open up to them. So he had his. First taste of uh, vichyssoise. I, I believe that was on the on the on the crossing on the boat, and then they uh, a neighbor took them out uh, in an oyster boat, and he had his first raw oyster. And he said that was really an, an epiphany of, you know, what the food could be interesting. Food could be a gateway to new experiences, and it just uh, it was sort of a life changing moment for for the young man. Now, the first time I read um, your book it was in pre publication. And so the, it was eye-opening to get the finished copy with the photographs. <laughs> Some of these photographs are just absolutely amazing. I like this one uh, where his high school graduation day <laughs> with the hair. I mean, it was with amazing. The long hair. Yeah, he was very much a product of his his era, which was the late '60s and early '70s when he was a teenager, and he, he definitely dressed the part, looked the part. He was rebellious. Uh, Christopher Bourdain, again, his brother, was extraordinarily uh, generous and helpful with with lending us uh, so many great photographs to use for the book. So there are definitely iconic photographs of Tony in his later years that many people have seen on the Internet or in magazines, but this book has Indeed, a treasure trove of photographs that I'm sure that no one has ever seen before. So it's really, it's really special to see that. Now, um, you knew Tony so well from working with him for so many years. Um, I guess my basic question is, how did you pick who you were going to interview um, and weed out the ones that are naysayers and and, uh, derogatory uh, profile information? Because there's plenty of that. I mean, I've been in this business quite a long time. Sure, sure. So, well, I, I do want to say that this book is is not a hagiography. I mean, it really does uh, try and, and 
give a 360 view of the man. So it's not all, uh, I mean, there's plenty of people who really loved and admired and respected him and had wonderful things to say about him. But there are also people who tell stories of being disappointed by Tony or, you know, being made angry by him or, 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 you know, tortured in the workplace. And so it's, I want to be clear that it's not simply just a, a, an homage to the man, although in some ways it is. Uh, as far as who uh, was interviewed, I, you know, I had a lot of great relationships, professional relationships with people who worked with and for Tony for a long time. So that was my starting point. Uh, and I knew uh, his wife, Otavia, um, and I just started reaching out to other people. You know, it was like I would talk to one person, and they'd say, oh, you have to talk to this guy, and then that person would say, you have to talk to this guy. And so his first wife, Nancy, who's very, very private, uh, was Oh, yeah, that was ordinarily. Yeah, what yeah, she, she was saying. she was very generous, uh, you know, for somebody who really shunned the spotlight, she really was quite generous with her time and her recollections. And she connected me to a number of the of the guys that he worked with uh, in kitchens in the 80s and 90s. And so it really was just a process of, of you know, one person leads to the next, leads to the next. And yeah. I have a close relationship with Tony's agent, who's now my agent, Kim Witherspoon. And she shed a lot of light on some of the people who were very instrumental in Tony's literary career. And uh, so it was, um, you know, there were certainly plenty of people who wanted to tell their stories about Tony. I mean, he just, he knew so many people. He touched so many lives. And so I did at some point have to start making some hard decisions. But I think you'll see in the book, it's a, it really is a 360-degree uh, view of the man. You don't, you don't go easy on him for his foibles, such as the uh, drug use, for example. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he was himself but you, the quite way you phrased uh, it, you know, I didn't realize how influential the past history of drug um, use contributed to his, his temperament, even though he was clean for so long. I mean, yeah, that's something that like, was kind of surprised me in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's definitely some speculation about that. And, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, if a person has addictive tendencies, even if they've been able to leave behind, uh, you know, a particularly destructive drug of choice like heroin, uh, if, if you're not uh, necessarily trying to examine the root causes of, of one's addictive pursuit of things, that it, it can continue to manifest in different ways, you know, and I think it's, it's, fair to say that Tony, uh, you know, chose all kinds of things to, to uh, interact addictively with, you know, both good and bad. You know, he was an incredible romantic, and in some ways he treated romantic love like an addictive drug. You know, he was very active in the martial art of jujitsu, and there was a period oh, yeah, where good. he was treating that as, a, as an addictive substance. So it really, uh, you know, I think, I think addiction goes beyond the individual um, – substances and sometimes goes to just deeper questions of what motivates a person and how how they live their lives. Well, I think you point that out very clearly in this book. That's one of the things that impressed me about it. Um, Thank you. I want to turn it around and ask you, after you knew him so well, was there anybody or anything somebody said that you interviewed that brought up a new new thing about him that you didn't know you weren't aware of mm-hmm. absolutely absolutely you know i felt that i knew him so well having worked with him for so long and having been in touch with him every day and uh i i felt that every single interview that i had there was some uh revelation big or small something new that i that i didn't know about him and in some cases they were, they were very small things but in some cases they were 
larger themes that I hadn't considered or, uh, you know, for instance, uh, his, his production partners, Lydia Tenalia and Chris Collins, talked a lot about how deeply ambivalent Tony was about starting to make television and how that ambivalence really stayed with him through the course of his, his extraordinary television career. And that was just not something I had ever discussed with him and not something I had ever considered. Knowing it now in retrospect, it makes a lot of sense. And, and I think that that tension between wanting to be on camera and feeling a little bit self-conscious or a little bit conflicted about being on camera, I think that actually made for much better and more compelling television than might have been the case otherwise. But it wasn't something that I realized, that especially in the beginning, he really, really struggled uh, with making the transition from being a writer and a chef and a private person to being an extremely public figure who had to perform on camera in a way that felt very unnatural for him at first. And never really, he never really relaxed into the persona of a performer. He could do it. He could perform. But it was always a little bit at odds with that authenticity that he lived by. This is something that I can understand because I mean I'm, I have similar reaction. I I did a lot of television and I really was mostly uncomfortable about the whole thing, <laughs> even though I did mm-hmm. fine. But you know, I mean, not, mm-hmm. not, not on Tony's level. But um, mm-hmm. talking to to all these people, I mean, like um, Eric Repair. I mean, it seems like this for a really big hole in his life. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, Eric has been very, very private uh, in his uh, reactions to this situation. It's something that he really uh, keeps close to the vest. But, of course, you know, they were very close friends and traveled uh, quite a bit together for television and just for pleasure and spent time together. And, uh, you know, Eric was, was there in France with him uh, when he died. And, exactly. I, you know, I, I can only sort of speculate how difficult that is for a friend to know that that you were so close and yet you know it didn't in the end this was a decision that tony made on his own he didn't reach out to anyone for help and this was you know sort of a tragic consequence so uh you know eric is a is a very uh is a very strong person he has a very strong uh spiritual practice and and um and a wonderful family, but but certainly this is a this, you know it's a devastating loss for for anyone to to suffer, especially someone who was so close. Yes, um, well, it, it's a it's a loss for TV viewers too. I mean, he mm-hmm. he he certainly had an audience. Yeah, yeah, he was he was so deeply beloved in a way that I don't think I truly understood. I think I sort of lost perspective working for him because he was just a, a daily. Uh, reality, and then to see the kind of outpouring that happened after he died was really extraordinary and painful. You know, to know that so many people were interested in what he had to say, people were um, inspired to travel, they were inspired to maybe give their neighbors a second consideration, have a conversation, you know, share a meal, all these things that Tony really espoused through television of, of just. Uh, giving each other a chance and listening and coming to the table together. And it was, you know, it was, a, it was just a, an extraordinary loss for the world. Right. So what's next? Well, I mean, in uh, terms of, he is, I mean, I think actually that overall um, the comments about him um, really, um, it, it, I think that it really, 
you know what I'm trying to say. I basically think that it, he's become a, a bigger f- figure and a, a more benevolent figure than, than he really was in real life. Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, just knowing him, I, I think he probably would be somewhat embarrassed by becoming this sort of modern figure so or this this icon. You know, I think he was a very, uh, a real human being who never... Uh, shied away from talking about his own flaws and his own weaknesses and humanity. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, the truth is he's, he is gone now and, and people, uh, you know, interact with his memory and his legacy in the way that brings them comfort. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been incredible to me to see again that, you know, the, the continued interest in him. It's now been about three and a half years since his death. There was, of course, a beautiful documentary film. Yeah, it was, it was uh, June of, of 2018. So uh, I, I, I do think that he, he's, it's possible that he will sort of transcend uh, to the level of someone like a David Bowie or an Andy Warhol or even Jimi Hendrix, somebody whose humanity uh, you know, has come to an end, but the, the impact that they've had on the culture is so pervasive that people will continue to talk about them, reference them, perhaps, you know, make work about and in reaction to the, what they've done. And so I, I think that's a pretty amazing legacy, you know, for someone who, who was, who could be quite self-effacing and, and, and quite humble about his gifts. Right. So you, you were very satisfied when you finished this book, I'm sure. Hmm? Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm very proud of it. I think it, it tells, uh, you know, much more of the story than, than one might uh, have learned just by watching him or watching, um, you know, reading his books or watching him on television. I think there's always more to, to, to know. I mean, there are, you know, little anecdotes and funny stories that I've heard since the book was, was published that I thought, oh, oh really? I wish I'd known that. I would have included that. But, uh, you know, I, I think the book gives a very uh, a very good and round portrait of a man and, and also shows sort of, uh, you know, what, what and whom he left behind. Um, you know, again, the photographs are, are so compelling and, and fresh. And, uh, yeah, I, I feel really proud of it. And I hope that uh, people, even if someone feels that they knew Tony very, very well, like I did, I think they'll stand to learn something new. And if someone is new to Tony and doesn't know much about him, there's, a, you know, certainly a lot to learn about him from this book. He certainly is a very complicated guy. So his mother has since died, didn't she? Yes, Gladys died in January of 2020. So I was I was so very lucky to it. speak with her in yeah, I was say, fall of 2018. And and you actually connected with his daughter, who's now you say 14. That's right. Yes, that's exactly the age of my granddaughter. Yeah. Oh. So I mean, it's a, it's a very difficult age, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you know, she's she's an extraordinarily, uh, you know, smart and level-headed kid, and she's got a fantastic mom, and, um, I, you know, I feel like she has a very... Yeah, she's wonderful, her. isn't she? Mm-hmm, his, mm-hmm. Well, he's not, he's not actually his ex. <laughs> right, They right. never finished the divorce, did they? That's right. Yeah, so, but anyhow, um, well, I'm going to say... Just for, for our listeners, um, I'm going to repeat that you are uh, Laurie Woolever, and the book is Bourdain, the definitive oral biography. But I wanted to circle back, Laurie, and just give uh, some sort of hint at what you're doing now. What are you working on? 
Sure. So I am in the middle of working on a book called, uh, tentatively called A Book About Bread, and it's a co-authorship with baker Richard Hart, who is British and has a beautiful bakery called Hart Bakery in Copenhagen, Denmark. And that's under the auspices of the Noma Group. So Richard is a is a really, really talented baker. He was for six years the head baker at Tartine in San Francisco and then he oh, uh, moved yeah. to, to Europe and, and started this wonderful bakery. So I uh it's been a, a real education in sourdough and uh, yeah, I'd uh, love that. and <laughs> Yeah. I mean I, I absolutely love the Tartine people. Um uh, what is her name? With a woman that worked there also. Elizabeth. Elizabeth yes, Pruitt? wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. wonderful. And um, yeah, and yeah, I love the whole story. Is this out of business, Tartine? No, no, they're 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 still quite. Uh, they're doing great. They're in San Francisco, and uh, you know they had a big expansion. I'm not sure if they have all the places that they they initially expanded into, but their their main flagship is still going. That's good. So um, how far along are you on your book? Uh, I'd say we've got another probably six to nine months of work to do. I did spend a couple of weeks in Copenhagen this summer just soaking it all up and spending a lot of time in the bakery and watching everything and uh, really getting my hands into the dough, which was just an extraordinary experience. Yeah, <laughs> Copenhagen has become sort of a world center now, which I mean, mm-hmm. 10 years ago, you wouldn't have thought that. <laughs> Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Next up, we've got Scott Brady, who actually um, has done just about everything imaginable in the culinary field, including creating this wonderful company called Brooklyn Cured, uh, which produces the most amazing uh, charcuterie products. And, and we are pigging out. Oh, right? yes. As we, as we might say, Peter in particular. Yes. He's, re- he's, re- he's really enjoying the different flavors. And the different concepts. I mean, the most amazing concept. Just to give you a, just to give you something to look forward to as we get into the interview. He created not just one kind of charcuterie, but sev- several different kinds, including a fascinating one, which is charcuterie designed particularly to be matched up with New York's favorite. Cocktails, and they'll be you get some, they'll be your favorite cocktails too. We're going to be talking to Scott Brady, who is um, the founder and owner of Brooklyn Cured. I have to say, Scott, just about everything happens in either Brooklyn or Vermont, also <laughs> in the specialty food <laughs> market. Um, tell us about Brooklyn Cured. We, we've had a number of of companies that the first word was Brooklyn and then it was something else. What was it? Brooklyn Brine is there, right. one of those. And we mean a whole bunch of them. So, but you're cured, so that tells us a little bit about what you do. Uh, right. Explain to us a little bit the backstory of this company. Absolutely. Uh, well, thank you guys for having me. It's a real pleasure to uh, 
to be with you. Um, and yeah, in in terms of Brooklyn itself, um, I am a lifelong Brooklynite uh, who grew up in an Italian American family in Bensonhurst, um, and then I, I became a professional chef and uh, whole animal butcher. So my my roots run really deep in in Brooklyn uh, culture. My family was really big on obviously, well not obviously, but having big family dinners uh, for holidays and every Sunday, and going to the local pork store, Salumeria, was a big part of our uh, our our dinner table. And I think just from a very young age, I was always exposed to cured meats, sausages, and having it having those items be associated with really positive memories and um, my Italian-American family and culture, which is a pretty large extended family, um, <laughs> as, 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 some, as some are. So um, I have those deep roots, but as you mentioned, there, like there was this, I, I went from being a professional chef to uh, a whole animal butcher specializing in charcuterie because it was a category of products that really spoke to me. Uh, because of my upbringing, and because it was also something that not a lot of people were doing in the U.S. Um, maybe 12 years ago. You've done this for 15 years, right? Um, I started Brooklyn Cured in 2010, and at that point in time, um, there was this upswell and, and proliferation of artisanal businesses that sprung out of, like, Brooklyn. And I feel like a lot of our friends in the industry still have uh, successful businesses uh, today. Um, so there was like um, the Brooklyn Flea and New Amsterdam market, uh, which was a market on Pier 17 right. in South Street Seaport, brought to light um, local businesses that worked with, uh, that sourced raw materials from local farms. And that just gave us all an opportunity to show our wares and go to market at a very low overhead. So that was the breeding ground for, like, I think a lot of uh, really phenomenal businesses that still exist today and have grown over the years in um, to be, like, national uh, sort of – to have national distribution. And that's – it's just pretty cool to be a part of it. Sometimes I don't think about that because yeah. all I do is, like yeah. – <laughs> <All right. laughs> So, um, yeah, I, I, before I forget, I wanted to ask you uh, what this other brand is that, that, um, that you handle – What's it called? Oh, Gilbert and Bernard? Yes, what is that? Yeah, Gilbert and Bernard is a new brand that my wife, Hannah, and I launched this year. So it's so new and exciting. And Gilbert and Bernard are essentially, uh, they, uh, this brand brings to light um, the, the uh, 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 I'm sorry. <laughs> Gilbert, Gilbert and Bernard is a brand that my wife Hannah and I started this year um, to almost introduce another uh, category of charcuterie and to capture and delight um, folks that might enjoy pate, um, but okay. almost like give it like an, a modern, updated look and feel and, and set of flavor profiles. We, um, My wife Hannah has um, an ice cream business called Nuna's Ice Cream, which is uh, a, a business that's, um, that, that focuses on Asian-inspired uh, ice cream flavors. She's Korean-American and from Queens, also a New York uh, girl. So um, there's oh, that, that New York vibe wonderful. in her house. 
So she and I have been working in a parallel universe over the years since we've been together for seven years, and we wanted to do something together. Gilbert and Bernard are the manifestation of our togetherness and mm-hmm. basically our love of pate. So um, we enjoyed pate in Montreal on our first anniversary. We enjoyed pate um, at uh, Frankie Spuntino, the restaurant where we got married, at their wine bar like um, on a very special day. Uh, so we, we just thought pate was very meaningful to both of us. Gilbert and Bernard are named for the two pigs that are the faces of the brand that are in the illustrations on the packaging. And it's a, it's a funny family story. But um, Bernard, who's the pig in the eyeglasses on the, on the <laughs> right, is uh, basically my avatar, and that's kind of a family joke. My, my aunt, who um, lives in Hawaii and we don't get to see very often, tends to like send us like gifts. One of the gifts was a plush pig toy that had uh, glasses and a bow tie. And I thought it was funny (laughs) because it was like my avatar uh, because I own a meat Uh. business and I wear glasses. So we just turned all of this like family, like love into another brand that focuses on pate. If that was too long winded, I apologize to you and your No, no. I mean, (laughs) it's all very interesting. I mean, your whole story is, is wonderful, I think. Yeah, if, Thank you. If, if, if you look at our website, you'll see one of the pictures is of a very large bronze pig. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. And, and Annie's hugging it. I mean, and, uh, pig, and, pig. and we, 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 were, we were at this mansion, I guess you would call it by now, because the, the owner grew up on it but then bought it out. And what, what was it he made with it? Copa, love it? I don't, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, the, the, the heart, the heart of the of, of the pig carcass. Yeah, right. And he he, yeah. he called himself the king of Copa. That and, is uh, amazing. And we were we were in we were in his warehouse, which right. was semi underground, on the banks of the River Po. Does this smell good? In, too, nor- by in the northern way. Italy. And, and he said he, inventory was a bit low. They only had 6,000 copus just now. <laughs> 6,000? <laughs> it was low inventory, yeah. That is low inventory. Wow, those guys must move to... Oh, the uh, smell. The, all the windows were open to, to the sea and everything. The smell was just beyond no, belief. They were open to the river. To the so, river, so, yeah. So the foggy, the foggy river Po That's sent, it. Sent, it, sent its foggy in, into the... Root curing room, I guess you would call it. What, what, right. what, whatever you call something that has 6,000 copas in it. <laughs> it's like a large chamber. It's like a, and, and yeah. Guess what the, the dinner menu was mainly made up. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we'd imagine we, there we, might be some pork on it. <laughs> we stayed there overnight, so we had, so we had copa for lunch. Dinner we and breakfast. We had, <laughs> We had copa. No, we we had copa for dinner before we went to bed, and we had copa copa for breakfast the next morning. That's that's <laughs> not a bad life. Um, not a bad life. Excess, excess is like you know you know everything in moderation sometimes, but sometimes we also have to like uh you know Orange. like put 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 that put that aside and and just enjoy and indulge for sure. No copa copa to me is one of the first items that made me fall in love with making charcuterie because of how beautiful and well marbled the muscle is it's almost like this uh uh, this like um, mosaic of like meat and fat and color and patterns that are 
just born into nature that, you know, like you can't really mimic. Like you can, you can mimic them with like plating food. But what I really attracted me about it, uh, what attracted me to charcuterie was the copa muscle that had all this marbling and these patterns that was just oh, really? DNA. It was like nature. It was just like I wanted to make this stuff, like because that muscle specifically uh, was just like this beautiful mosaic found in nature. So I, it, it's cool that that there were, there was six thousand pounds of it hanging on the river Po. That sounds like so idyllic to me. <laughs> now you 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 have a you have a, a Gilbert meat that's sort of similar, <laughs> like that, what it's called. Was it's kind of in the bottom right hand corner of your flyer. Right, Gilbert. It was a name I didn't recognize. Um, in the on the flyer, is that the Gilbert and Bernard brand? I think so. That's what he's talking about, Rabbit. It's one of, it's one of the okay. Gilbert. The Gilbert and Bernard brand is a, is a sweet, sweetheart. Yes. Can you can you if you bring over the if you bring over the paper, I'll I'll identify it. I don't have it in front of me, so I just want to be sure we're all on the same page here. Here. Yeah, I'm trying to be on the same page with you, and I'm having I'm having trouble explaining it. No, it's okay. Here we go. Bresciola with porcini and black pepper. Yes. And then, and then you have smoked copa. Right Correct. Yes. Yeah. With tasso spice. Right. Um, and, so and yeah, you, have so lamp, you have lamb pr- prosciutto. And yeah, that one. Thing, that looks thing, good. The lamb thing prosciutto. I remember most about lamb prosciutto is that Mario's father used to make it for him. Oh right. Yeah. Mario absolutely. Um, yeah. No. Absolutely. And yeah, the lamb prosciutto is not something that we see much in the U.S. And I think I just love lamb. Uh, so much. Yeah. We have a lamb salami with sitar. We have the lamb prosciutto. We make a lamb riguez. Um, yeah, I love to be lamb, like lamb too. And, and we, we're <laughs> blessed, but Pittsburgh was having really good lamb, organic lamb producers around. But one of them just stopped doing the restaurant stuff. Um, Jail oh, really? Lamb. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. they supplied a lot of New York restaurants. And, uh, and that, And then we have Elysian Fields, which is Thomas Keller's I forget what they changed the name to now, um, but anyhow, that's the good quality pure, pure products. Purebred, purebred. Yeah, purebred. Yeah, I used to I used to work with that lamb in at Gramercy Tavern, and when I was a chef at a, a neighborhood restaurant, um, it was yeah definitely the best lamb that we have ever used. I actually made a lamb copa with um, the Elysian Field lamb back. This was like ten years ago for a restaurant that I was the chef at. Um, and we haven't made a lamb copa for Brooklyn Cured because the scalability of that muscle from the lamb is a little bit challenging. But, yeah, um, okay. yeah no, that lamb is fantastic. And, yeah, the only barriers for some people are that it's not as sort of popular as pork or beef because I think the American palate's a little bit different, but that's okay. You know, like we, we do pork and beef items. I just like to make – a wide variety of items, which is what differentiates you, you us from a lot of You have how many items? You have an enormous product list. Tell us about oh, that. Oh wow! Um, some well, thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I don't. Uh, it's 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 about forty items at this point in time. 
um, we launched the four Gilbert Bernard Pate SKUs uh, in March. So that brought us to just about 40 items, and we have three new sausages as well. So it's a, it's a, the breadth of offerings is pretty large for a company of our size. Not that we're small necessarily, but we're not, um, you know, like a, a meat conglomerate, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. However, like I think my, my, my um, experience in making charcuterie by hand for so many years has really informed what we want to bring to the market. So we started out with a, a fully cooked sausage line um, and some deli meats uh, way back in 2010 because we were able to make those in a USDA facility that was fully cooked. Over the years, um, I wanted to add more cured meats to the mix because I had a lot of experience making cured meats. It was just more challenging to get the certifications and find the right partners to make cured meats, such as Soprasada, Finocchiona, which is what I grew up with. In, um, in so you're from the, the south of Italy? Um, well, uh, I'm from Brooklyn, and my parents are also from Brooklyn. Your, our your our ancestry, my, back, my, my mother's side of the family is from Sicily, and my dad's side of the family is from northern Italy, which is, um, yeah, so it's like this, yeah. like, like this, this blend of like Italian culture in, in our family, which is kind yeah, of... Yeah, cool. well, mine is Sicily, 100%. <laughs> but, nice. So this that's is, the food this, I grew up is, with. Oh yeah, God, like and that, that was a huge influence on us and how my mom cooked, for sure. I'm drooling like here. Like, I'm, look, I'm looking at lamb and pork salami with zatar. The, See, yes, zatar is that, one of my favorite spices. That, did, we, did we send you some uh, lamb and pork salami? Guys, I don't no, recall I don't, what was no, in the box. No, I don't, I, don't, I don't think so. I'm just looking, I'm just looking at the flyer with the picture on okay. it. Okay. We can we've send been, you guys we've any... been enjoying the the uh, uh, your product enormously, and I like the packaging of it as well. I mean, it's um, sometimes charcuterie is not very. I mean, the packaging of the charcuterie is not contemporary. It's not, um, you know, it seems a bit outdated. But yours seems really sharp and up to date and easy to use. Thank, uh, thank you, and I I appreciate that. That's that's something uh, that's we work very hard on. You, you have another you have another novel approach to making salami, which is to mix it with things that go in cocktails. Oh, you talked to us yes. about that. <laughs> sure. What do you, why uh, do you yeah. call this the Manhattan and all that stuff? Well, um, it's just fun. Um, it, we we launched those cocktail-inspired salami in in 2019, and we won a Good Food Award for the Mezcal Lime Salami um, huh? this year. In 2021, which is very exciting. Um, oh, so that's great. the inspiration is, is, is basically um, I wanted to create some salami items that were truly unique and truly American. And what's more American than cocktails, right? Like the, the cocktail yeah. culture um, in the U.S. is really, really strong and has influenced the rest of the world, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, but not only did I want to create something unique, but I also wanted to we also wanted to create flavors that made sense with pork and salami. So like the bourbon and sour cherry, which is inspired by a Manhattan cocktail. Yes. Bourbon and sour cherries are flavors that I like to pair with pork because of the smokiness, the sweetness, the red fruits pair very well with pork and many pork dishes, whether it's pork chops with like sour cherries and, and arugula or, or just that whole, like we have a, a ham that's smoked with bourbon and maple syrup. And those flavors just work really well with pork. 
And in my mind, a classic Manhattan cocktail is a great bourbon, a little bit of nice herbaceous vermouth, and um, uh, a Luxardo cherry garnish. So I, I just saw this as like, I don't know, just a way to make something that was fun and delicious and, and unique. And then the other uh, four items in the cocktail-inspired uh, set are a Belgian ale and lemon zest, which is more inspired by um, uh, German beer gardens than necessarily cocktails, but it's the same vibe. Um, and a, a, rye, a rye whiskey and orange, which is inspired by an old-fashioned cocktail. And the mezcal and lime, which has a deep smokiness and like this um, a little bit of coriander and garlic and citrus that really reminds us of like, uh, I don't know, like pork and tacos or like a Cuban-style mojo. The flavors make sense together. Um, even, even See, though this is your chef-y background. Your chef-y background that elevates this product. I don't think anybody could do this who does not have that that exposure and that that bent to chef work. I mean, you have a chef's palate. Sweetheart, Thank you. That's what, very what, very kind what, of you to what, say. What's What's my favorite cocktail? Always have Always what have it in New Orleans. Um, oh, a vieux carré. It has rye in it. Is it a vieux carré? No. No, um, no. I can't remember what it is now. Um, Boulevardier? You always order um, Now I'm just guessing. It's, uh, it's a typical New Orleans. Name name some classic New Orleans cocktails. Um, the Vieux Carré, the Boulevardier. There's, oh, there's also one with an absinthe wash. Um, I'm just trying to remember what it is. Sazerac, maybe? Yeah, that's it, Sazerac. This Sazerac. This is a this is a good one. Um, yeah, it does have like that's the one. Yeah, with rye and absinthe and cognac. Um, a Sazerac is a lot of fun. I guess that absinthe flavor is really like the anise. Wow, I haven't been to New Orleans in a few years. I'd like to go back. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, we haven't been anywhere in a few years. I mean, we used to cover all the international events, and we've not been anywhere. Here, I wish we could have this. Here's a piece of advice for you, though, when you go when you go to New Orleans again, don't don't bother going to the Museum of the American Cocktail. You don't even go near it. <laughs> Talk about the worst when, museum I've ever seen. When, when, oh when no. We, we, we went around it and we we talked to somebody who had let us in to the museum on the way in, and we we told them it was so bad they gave us our money back. <laughs> Oh my goodness, that's so disappointing. I'm, I'm yeah, well, I know because yeah, because that's the site of Tales of the Cocktail Competition. I know it's really bad. Right. They've got to do something well, about that. Well, it's, it's probably as well. Go, go ahead. Well, oh, I, um, I, I wanted to just say that we've been saying how wonderful all of your uh, charcuterie is and salumi. Um, but how does anybody get it? Let's talk about oh, that. Oh gosh, very very um, easily. Um, we we have an online store at uh, BrooklynCured.com where we ship nationally. Um, all of our cured meats are available uh, to ship anywhere in the United States on BrooklynCured.com, and we have a great bunch of gift sets that include the cocktail-inspired salami that include the Gilbert and Bernard pâtés paired with some of our 
favorite cheeses, like from Jasper Hill Farm in Vermont. Oh, I love them. Some yeah, really I love great them. jams. Yeah. 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 So, so our online store is the easiest way for anyone in the country to get our products. Um, we do offer our products uh, to uh, uh, via many retail outlets throughout the country, whether it's um, Whole Foods, Wegmans, um, and a, a whole host of other uh, stores that we're, we're proud to say that are are partners of ours but like if any like you know if, if if you live in a state where you know our distribution might not be as developed going to brooklyncured.com and, and placing an order is the way to go that's simple enough more people are doing that now than before the pandemic actually we, we've seen that yes we we've definitely seen that and we welcome we we just really um want to be able to not only tell our story and share our products but also be able to share them as widely as possible. And that's where the online store comes in. It's, it's you know, it's probably not, it's, it's more about having anyone that hears about us to have access to the products that sound exciting to them um, rather than like b- becoming like this e-com like business. We're, we're more like um, focused on working with our retail partners and because they know how to sell and market things like better. But we, our online store is just for folks that he, maybe hear about us maybe can't find us in their local grocery store so they have access to what we do um, and can experience what we make, which is kind of fun and cool. Yeah, what about your wife's uh, ice cream? <laughs> awesome. I'll give, I'll give, I'll give, I'll give uh, Nuna's ice cream a, a, a good plug. Um, Hannah, um, my, my wife Hannah started Nuna, Nuna's ice cream. That's N-O-O-N-A-S ice cream.com. And she also uh, does a great job of uh, having an online store that features really the best of the best of her ice cream flavors. Um, there's a toasted rice and a black sesame and a green oh, tea. Oh, wonderful. And a, and a turmeric honeycomb. E- I just got an email from Mount Morgan Stearns. You must know them, right? Right. Yeah, ice of cream. course. Yeah. Yeah. Anyhow, no, they absolutely. just came out with a, a line of Singapore flavored ice creams. Oh wow, that is that look is at that. Wild. Look up that. That sounds look up great. That, that, we're gonna they're, we're gonna we're gonna definitely check that out. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're so not good to work with, by the way. They're, they're terrible to work with. <laughs> I have to say, maybe I'm we can delete that when we do the editing. <laughs> but they're really difficult. Uh, I, I I know Nick from like actually like um he was the pastry chef at Gramercy Tavern many years ago when. Uh, I first started cooking, and I remember he was very kind to me before I even knew how to hold a knife, like 15, 20 years ago. You know, like uh-huh. so. Um, that's 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 like really all I can say. I, I yeah, every, everyone, uh, yeah, like it's it's a it's a small it's a small small world. But I remember oh, it is. Uh, interacting with him, and like he was like very very talented guy, but like uh, and very driven. But like he was actually really kind to me when when I was very when I was struggling. So I remember that well, that's good. that was a long time ago, 15, 20 years ago. You know, uh, maybe 15, more like fifteen years ago. But um, no, like H- Hannah, my wife, like her ice cream business, Nuna's Ice Cream, is Asian inspired flavors that really are meaningful to her. like our inspiration is from our home, basically in our family upbringing, both of us together and separately. And she has a great set of flavors like Tugana Coffee and uh, Makati Blues, Makati being a, uh, a Korean rice wine that is not widely available, but it's a delicious ice cream flavor um, that's very unique and only available exclusively on her website at, um, at NunasIceCream.com. So I'll, I'll, I'll 
Um, I'll let you guys decide uh, <laughs> whether or not it's relevant <laughs> to what we're talking about, but you have to. <laughs> well, listen um, here. I I really enjoyed this conversation, and I'm certainly enjoying you. your your product. And um, I, I wish you continuing success, and I'm sure you will. You've got so much energy; it's making me feel like a, a slug. <laughs> you're, you're great. You're absolutely great. I, I'm, I'm like, I'm just excited to be talking to you guys, and I, I really appreciate your time and the fact that you thought enough of us to reach out um, and, and, and chat with us for a bit. And we're happy that you're enjoying the products and. It's an absolute pleasure to speak to you, um, Anne and Peter, and hopefully we can we can connect again in the near future. That's great. So, well, we need to, to move on. We have a, another interview coming up, and so um, I'm going to say. So there we have it. So until another show in the bag yeah, or in the exactly. can or whatever whatever you put them. Yeah, right now who knows. Um, anyhow, until next week, same time. Same place. You can never tell when these people will crop up again, but we've been doing it for how many years now, my dear? Wrapping up close to, well, we're almost close to wrapping up 18 years. There you go. So we hope you'll join us for another 18. And until then, bye next, bye. Week, next week, same time, same place. Bye-bye.